It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Market Watch podcast by Amplify Live, where you can access the latest market insights with me, Anthony Chung, the head of market analysis and joined by our head of trading, Piers Curran, getting you up to speed on what mattered in markets this week. Very good afternoon and welcome to the latest Market Watch podcast episode. In fact, episode 21, and as ever, joined by head of trading, Piers Curran, to go over some of the main themes of the week. And we are going to be discussing the latest US inflation report. We're also going to be talking about the ECB meeting from this week and then what to expect from the G7 that's happening in Cornwall, of all places, this weekend. So, Piers, we're actually recording this a lot later than we normally would. So are you ignoring me or is there something else going on? Yeah, late late one here. Sorry for the delay. Uh, busy week. Um, this week, it, it we kicked off our first uh, summer analyst program. So here at Amplify, um, we, we run programs over the summer for for students looking to to break into um you know the big banks in, in various different roles um you know not only markets roles actually but also uh, ibd roles and so on so yeah we've got about just shy we've got about 90 odd um enthusiastic um hungry youngsters who are on our program and so yeah we've been Bit of a bit of a crash course on the sell side of the industry we've done some sales trading we've done some equity research um, and macro and and lots going on. So yeah, it's just actually really, it's always a it's always a good bit busy time of the year. Well, actually they'll be listening to this. So uh, a shout out to our summer analysts. Um, but it's a busy one, and uh, it was great actually this morning. We, we get some guest speakers in as well. So this morning we actually had the uh, the global or I should say ex um, ex global head of equity trading for Deutsche Bank who uh, stepped in for a forty five minute chat to talk about all things uh, markets, but also, you know, careers-wise, you know, what are these big banks looking for in candidates? And um, so, yeah, it was amazing to have him on and a really interesting uh, conversation. But yeah, so unfortunately, the podcast got bumped by the global head of equity trading, Deutsche Bank. Sorry about that. How dare you? And I thought, here we were having a relationship, you know, we're, we're the, the Batman and Robin, uh, and you go off because there's a better deal around the corner. How dare you? Uh, you know, my head's been turned. What can I say? <laughs> All right. Well, look, let's get, let's get straight to it then and, and talk about what arguably was the, we, we knew it was going to be the main event of the week, and that was the US inflation report. And you know, from a trading perspective, dealing with the traders day to day, Fairly frustrating week, all in all, because as such is the calendar when there is one very concentrated moment for short-term traders to focus on that would act as a catalyst then for subsequent direction. I mean, you've got to wait until Thursday for a start, and then it kind of comes out and actually top, top level, the way the markets kind of reacted is that 
look, this doesn't change what the Fed are going to do. And so therefore, normal service resumes and in a somewhat unusual way where, just to be clear, US CPI for May hit 5%, (laughs) which is the highest reading since August of 2008, up from 4.2% the prior month. Um, The index for all items, less food and energy, so the core reading, 3.8%. That's the largest 12-month increase now we've had since the period ending 1992. Wow. So your natural assumption, of course, is like, okay, so how far did equities fall? And um, <laughs> where are yields trading at the moment? Uh, and in fact, of course, it's the kind of opposite of what you would imagine, because here we are in the, the modern day economics world where we've hit a fresh all-time high in the S&P 500 um, just yesterday. So any, any initial yeah. thoughts on, yeah. on that reading? It's, it's interesting. I mean, uh, yeah, so stocks all-time highs. Well, you know, like the S&P, I think the Nasdaq's almost there, not quite. But um, yeah, stocks up, um, bond yields down, you know, precisely the opposite to what your kind of, I don't know, your textbook might say, right, in terms of responding to much higher than expected inflation. Um, I think it's it's just one of those weird behavioral market events we've been so obsessed with inflation and you've only got to listen back through our podcast series over the last few months to to really see how obsessed it's been the hot topic i mean literally since january kind of thing um and i think i think yesterday was almost that that watershed moment where yes the number was higher than expected and as you've just rolled out the highest for depending on which inflation number you're looking at the highest for x number of years or even decades right but it's almost like people have just drawn a line under it after yesterday's data because we always knew that the spring was going to be the spike we always knew it was april and may okay and now we've had april and we've had may figures so that the inflation figures for may were reported yesterday and it's almost like we're now over that hump and yeah, they were much higher than expected. But in reality, as we've been saying all along, traders are happy and confident this is transitory and inflation will calm down. And so it's almost like it's behind us. Thank God we can kind of get over that and then let's move on. And, and actually, I think perhaps a bigger factor in the response is that we've got the big Fed meeting next week. And if you go back a few months, of course, we were thinking, right, when when might the Fed start talking about the fact they're thinking about tapering. And we were speculating that at the absolute earliest, it'd be the June meeting. Well, here we are, right? Next week's the June meeting. And and, and I think now that we're here, the chances of them saying, we're going to think about starting to taper have probably reduced. Um, And so I I think we're through that spring inflation hike. I think people are still happy it's transitory. And I think they're less worried about the Fed starting to tighten. And so I think yeah. that's why we've pushed on. And on that transitory um, point, there's a couple of stats here that it was it was good because when we were going into the um, actual release with the, with the traders, uh, what I was trying to stress to them was that just be careful of two-way price action upon the initial release when we talk about to the second. And typically, then that's where you get algorithmic trading, obviously trying to execute in incredibly fast timeframes, not the arena of the point-click discretionary trader. And the way that that spike initial price action typically just reacts to the first input. So the machine goes 5%, freaks out a little bit because that's above the top end of the range, spikes in the way you would traditionally economically logically think and then us humans pile in and go hang about this is underlying and this is the part that really i think is why we move like we did so energy index rose 28.5 percent over the past 12 months the may 2021 increase was the largest 12 month increase since the period ending april 1980 cars so used cars was obviously the big one before Used cars and trucks increased 29.7%. While, of course, you buy a car, what else do you need? Motor vehicle uh, insurance was up. <laughs> well, crikey, who, who are you? You're the, <laughs> Dri- the driver. Not, not, you're not really driving clubs. 
<laughs> well, hang on. You bought your first ever car. I like, yeah, like you know, what, being 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 a uh, uh, a majority. I, I was trying to think. Uh, probably like half my life, I've actually lived in London, but I still don't classify myself as a as a Londoner. It's weird, isn't it? You kind of just go, "Where are you from?" You always say where you were born, not actually yeah. where you've lived the majority of your life. But so on that front, then, would you be a Londoner? Well, I, don't, I wouldn't classify myself as a Londoner, no. But as you say, I've, I've lived in London for more than half of my life. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not a Londoner. Yeah, not with your where, accent. Where you live these days, you know, <laughs> not only gloves, you need, the, you need the scarf and flat cap, you know, part of your full-on Well, that's it, action. you know. I, I just set the dog off and that's it. I carry my rifle, I drop my daughter off. But no, it's uh, it's a very different life down here in the in the suburbs um, compared to the city life. But um, but yeah, the point being that motor vehicle insurance was up about seventeen percent in step with the uh, with used cars and trucks. Airfares, you know, travels starting to pick up again. They've obviously had a real tough time. Um, the airline fares continue to increase, rising seven percent after increasing ten percent the prior month. So still up but decreasing. Uh, and then households are still buying furnishings and things like that as well. So the point being is that all, all four of those factors, I think, do play into that idea that there's no way they can sustain that type of price. I guess what I'm interested in is exactly what you said. We're over the spring hump now. And when people talk about sticky inflation and, you know, is the market right or wrong at the moment to believe the Fed's view of transitory? Well, I think the next reading is actually what's going to be more interesting because then we're getting to that period where these base effects and so on are, are going to be eliminated to a certain degree. And let's see, um, as the economy starts to reopen and that job gap starts to, uh, to tighten a little bit. But on the jobs yeah. front, as you said, let's forget inflation. The jobs market is a million miles away from where it needs to be to satisfy the Fed. Yeah. So I will cover the June meeting with... 100% diligence, as I always do, but I'm afraid to say that I'm a little bit fearful. It might be a lot more dull than what we were discussing just a few weeks ago. Yeah. And look, that jobs market is the absolute key to this whole debate. Is this inflation spike, is it temporary or not? And actually, is it the beginning of something more meaningful in terms of upside, sustained inflation pressures? And, and if it is the latter, then we do have a problem. Um but the only way to have that sustained upside inflation trend is if, in the end, wages go up. And, you know, it's fine. Like, if product prices increase and right, all those input costs have jumped sharply for some of these manufacturers, we've talked about all of that. But, you know, in the end, they have to pass the price hike onto the consumer. And in the end, can the consumer afford to pay that increased price. And if their wages aren't going up at the same rate as inflation is, then unfortunately they won't be able to afford. And, and so the consumption will drop and will be hurt as a result because people just can't afford to buy as much anymore. And once that consumption trend turns, well then, yeah, you, you're, you know, you're, you're, you've got recession risk on your hands. And so- Yeah, in terms of where we're at with that as well at the moment, real average hourly earnings in the US, which account for inflation, were down 2.8% in May from the previous year, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. There you go. Transitory. <laughs> That's the, uh, so yeah, I mean, obviously we'll, we'll monitor that labor market thing as we go through the months. For me, the most interesting, I mean, what grabbed the headlines? Fine, stocks new all-time highs, but easily the most important market reaction this week, easily, is the US bond markets. And, you know, yields, as we were just saying, yields dropping um, as inflation spikes is not what your textbook would say, but that's what's happened. And, you know, we're down to the 150, in fact, we're below the 1.5 handle. So US 10-year yields below 1.5, and that's actually the lowest we've been for a few months now. And that's your absolute most that that's the strongest signal that markets are definitely satisfied it's transitory and actually around this price point or yield level for us t notes is actually a massive important technical level um because it around just just around this one point 
um, five or even down to let, let's say the 1.46 area was the 2019 low. And it was also the 2012 double bottom. And actually, we pretty much tested it around 2016. So, so actually, this is a hugely significant yield level from a technical point of view. Um, so we're trading down on, on the lowest we've seen for a few months. And that's, that's your key sign that we kind of moved past this inflation uh, panic. It really pretty much is now behind us, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and in the, the spillover into the equity market, NASDAQ finished yesterday, Thursday up a percent, Dow flat. Today, NASDAQ outperforming, Dow underperforming. Yep. So all those conversations we've done in previous podcasts about this, the sector play, about value and growth, it just keeps that in check for the moment. And the tech stocks are catching a bit of a break in the last two sessions of the week uh, for some of the mega cap tech names. So, all right, well, let's move on. Let's, let's talk about the- Can we make easy... a deal just before you oh, move yeah. on? Let's make a deal. Can we, can we try and do a podcast without talking or talking about inflation? <laughs> let's try it next okay. week. Can we get through a whole episode? Without talking about inflation, that's that's. Okay, if you, if I you're challenge gonna put, you. If you're going to put that out there, then what is the punishment for mentioning <laughs> inflation, though, for either you or I? Because I'll I'll take that. I'll take that challenge. Well, well, maybe our listeners should should give the answers to that. So, if you can provide some uh, <laughs> some some appropriate punishments, uh, listeners, then uh, put some. Let let us know. Get in touch. Yeah, if they, if if uh, I'm sure this gets shared by the marketing team on like Twitter and, and Facebook and the rest, so just drop a comment and let us know how you'd like us to be punished. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Let's on that, on that, on. yeah, on that note, the ECB. So ECB going into it, there was some mild interest on this idea that in Europe, um, I was I was looking at. It's going to sound incredibly boring, but I was looking at um, case rate trajectory uh, curves <laughs> of different pockets of the world. And, and basically, it's interesting because the UK and the US have fast out the gate and they've kind of the curve is, is kind of petering off. And we're hoping, touch wood, that suppliers now will resume and start to increase further um, for the likes of the UK and so on. But in Europe, there's it's kind of the opposite. They're very bad at the beginning and actually they've ramped it up and they're accelerating even much faster um, than the UK and US at the present point in time. Consequently, what, the vaccine, are you talking about number of vaccines? First dose vac vaccinations like administered day, yeah. Yeah, per day. So um, Europe's picking that up. So I guess the domino effect there is that sentiment generally starts to pick up, both consumers, corporates. We're seeing that reflected in data. It's leading to further reopening. That feels, feeds through into the old underlying economy and so on. Um, so some people are looking at the idea that perhaps then following a similar pattern to what we've seen from, say, the Bank of Canada already, who in fact have been tapering um, already twice. Um, they're, they're, they're down already, have re reduced their purchasing on two separate occasions over recent months, most recently in, in April, I think it was when they last did it. Uh, and whether or not the improvements justified the ECB to not, obviously we're not talking about ending, but just to make signs that perhaps they don't need to go at what they coin as a phrase, significant higher pace, um, were they gonna remove yeah. some of these words, right? To and, and essentially they did not. And so as such, I think largely as expected, it was a it was a bit of a non non-event to some extent. Christine Lagarde said, although the economy was gradually reopening, uh, and I'm a bit scared to say it now, but inflation was expected to continue <laughs> rising this year. The central bank expects price growth to fade again next year. Um, so, yeah, well, timing wise, yeah. So timing wise, just to conclude, then that what they're saying is a Bloomberg survey economists and not looking for really the taper thing to become or slowing down a bond purchase to become a real thing in the Europe until September is what bank economists are, are expecting. Yeah. So 20 billion euros a month of... A oh, week. Sorry, uh, sorry, come on. Month. Come on. Well, what dude, you're such a cheap, cheapo. What come a, on. What, a, what an hour. Such a cheapskate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 20 bill a week 
Um, so that's the pace at which they're purchasing assets as part of their QE program. And that'll be maintained till September, right? That's the current Bloomberg yeah. survey result. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's right. I, you know, in, in the end, um, you know, you always, uh, well, I always compare the ECB with like the Fed. Um, and, and they never, they never look good when you kind of sit them alongside the Federal Reserve and, and compare their, their actions like for like, because historically and to this present day, um, the ECB are always one step behind. Um, and I, I, I'd say that, yeah, it would be foolhardy to start making a move uh, to kind of taper the QE program, um, you know, before even the Fed have started to talk about thinking about that. Um, so, you know, I think they've, you know, the euro is pretty expensive as it is against the dollar, a lot to do with dollar weakness, of course. And I think if the ECB went early here on their exit strategy, well, then the euro would just get even more expensive. And, and ultimately, that would hurt them and hurt their exporters. So, you know, I think to a, to a degree, they'll never admit it, but to a degree that the ECB's hands are tied and, and their timing is really dictated by what the Fed do, in my, in my view. Yeah, and this was a, a good question I had actually from one of the interns who were talking about this idea about the, the timing and the differential between the commitment to be uh, open-ended and unlimited in case of the US and what they said back in March of 2020 when we hit the real low and that was yeah. the trigger for the about turn, the whatever it takes um, from, the, from the US style. Um, and then comparative to Europe, which have kind of had this ceiling or envelope as they call it of a maximum amount that they're willing to purchase and then obviously having a ridiculously high ceiling is a signal to the market that look we're, we're serious um and the probably likelihood is we wouldn't even get close to it because we'll start petering out the, ne the necessity to go at such pace uh, but yeah it was, it was these are good questions because it is uh, you know is there much difference between the two and one of the things i was saying was that you know aside from that um, I always have thought that the ECP and the, the Bank of England and the like get a bit of a break because of the fact that the Fed are really doing all of the hard work. You know, when it comes to, say, the response, it's the Fed who typically move first. Um, I, you know, I, I think yeah. credit to them. I mean, through my career's experience in the financial crisis and in this crisis, you know, the Fed are the first to commit. And the other central banks kind of hold back and hope, obviously, that the Fed go big. And so we can go not so big because it's more cost effective. <laughs> uh, and the market, I know we talked about the end of globalization is nigh, but obviously that's a long way off. And, and so markets are very interconnected. And if the Fed are going to backstop unlimited, that's enough of a signal for global confidence. And then the others kind of just come in in the shadows and follow up and do their bit. Um, I think that's right, especially if you talk about, compare them to the ECB. One of the great kind of um, sort of stark contrasts is using the example of the financial crisis in 2008, and the Fed went early with their QE program, and they had three massive rounds of quantitative easing over the, the following years, and they ended, the Fed ended their QE program in October 2014, ended it. The ECB didn't even start their QE program until March 2015. They're literally five years behind the curve. Um, but I would say about the Bank of England, because actually one of my most absolute, most memorable trading days, I'll, I'll cast your mind back, uh, November 2008, uh, the first Thursday in November 2008, midday. On the first Thursday in November 2008, do you know what happened? I'll tell you. No. It's the Bank of England announcement. We were expecting an interest rate cut, stimulative measure to support the markets and the economy. We were expecting 0.5% cut. Um, what did the square? It might even have been you, actually, who shouted down the mic with, with 
an enthusiasm that I haven't heard since. And it was cut 1.75, cut 1.75. Do we honestly need to go here, Piers? You know, this, uh, I had to go to therapy for a long time (laughs) to get over those wounds, those mental wounds and scar. That scar still cuts deep. Uh, But you are right. Actually, it wasn't 1.75. Was it 1.25, was it? No, I, I, I said 100 basis points, Pierce. Come on. Right, right. And um, yeah, and uh, obviously that was very far wide of the mark. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just, um, I don't know. I don't, uh, well, I do know what went wrong. The pressure of the moment went wrong. Uh, and I remember that day, and just to give you a little insight, I remember that day after I did it, I was just like shell-shocked, as was everyone else, obviously, in the room. Um, fortunately for my sake, no one actually traded what I said because it was yeah. so farcical. They were like, it, this can't be real. And so actually not one person um, said a lot about how much they respected me back then, then. <laughs> then no one listened <laughs> to me. That was quite early in my career, I must add. But um, so, so I remember I went to the toilet. And then um, I was just shell-shocked. Had a word with yourself. I had a word with myself, went back to the office, got told to go home. And as you said, this is midday. (laughs) (laughs) So went home, sat there, had a little cry in my bedroom, and then just literally um, had to earn my way back. And it took, I would say probably six to eight months before any trader would then listen to me on the score again. Um, And as I say, my saving grace is that we didn't lose any clients because no one lost any money. But yeah, yeah, I mean, trust is a massive thing, right? In that relationship between service provider, surveilling, uh, you know, providing surveillance of markets in real time, and then you as the end result client trader um, in a and- way, it's it's one of those thankless jobs. In a way, it's almost like you're the goalkeeper of the football team. Whereby, um, if you have a bad day, then the spotlight is on you, and it, it, and the repercussions of a bad day are monstrous. Um, if you have a good day, well, from a trader's point of view, if you had a good day, I made I made money. But yeah. I made money, but I, w- but I wouldn't think, oh, I made money because of Anthony Chung. I think I'd made money because I'm an amazing trader. So it's almost like you don't get the thanks when you deserve yeah, yeah. them. It was, it was a real thankless task. And, yeah. and what was also equally annoying from my side was, you know, we would be in without fail before 6 a.m. at the desk every day We'd stay there for 12 hours, glued to the desk every minute. And then the traders have all seen, hung over. They shout <laughs> at you. They say, you got that wrong. They lose money. It's your fault. Make money. Yeah, that's, that's me who made it. And so you did have to have a little bit of a thick, thick skin for can it. I, can uh, I just say, we didn't, we didn't all walk in late and hung over. Well, no, that's, that's because you're the ice man, uh, Piers. <laughs> yeah but but anyhow that's enough of talking going going to my my dark place my demons uh yeah i do remember that though clearly i remember how hot my temperature felt <laughs> and the sweat coming off me but, when i did that back to topic i mean it was the bank of england did they were right out right out in front as well with the fed when the crisis hit in 2008 um they they weren't really you know taking a back seat at that point um, like like the ECB, but I mean, you know, the ECB. Yeah, you have these um, you know moments in your career that that kind of stick in your mind, and certainly from a central bank event point of view, you know, the, Mario Draghi's you know very famous. We'll you know we'll do whatever it takes speech. Um, Google it, Draghi, whatever it takes. Very important moment. Um, I don't want to be too dramatic here, but a very important moment for the eurozone and you some might argue if draghi hadn't stepped up with that speech then uh, we may not have a eurozone now i mean that is dramatic to say but google it draghi whatever it takes yeah yeah another person i thought always got a hard time for for some would argue lots of reasons was gordon brown 
Yeah. Because you remember Lloyd's and RBS, the UK was very quick to step yeah. in and we were right at the precipice of a systemic failure of the system. And I, I totally, you know, this is very different from a humanitarian crisis, of course, but from a financial crisis, literally, I mean, you, you traded this event, at, you know, the, the, this era yourself. It did feel a little bit like we were right on the cliff edge where, do you remember the rumors, Barclays cash points going to run dry yep. and you're thinking this is going to happen. The system's going to collapse. And so there's going to be like riot on the streets. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the only thing, the problem with Gordon Brown is in 2002, well, between actually, so they came to power, right? He was Tony Blair's sidekick, for those who don't know. He was Tony Blair's chancellor, and they came, Tony Blair came to power in 97. <laughs> and between 1999 and 2002, Gordon Brown, the chancellor, was so convinced that New Labour had created the perfect economic setup that they were so convinced that Gordon Brown set about selling all of the UK's gold bullion holdings, okay? All of it. So Gordon Brown sold all our gold. Do you know what price he got? Basically, he was selling around about $275 to $275. And you know what? That's a 40-year low. Gordon Brown picked the 40-year low to sell all our gold. And he did that between 99 and 2002. And after that, it didn't matter what he did. In my eyes, you're, you're dead to me, Gordon. So <laughs> come on, Pierce, turn the other cheek. It's forgiveness. Um, Maybe one day. Yeah. Um, I don't think that ever left poor Gordon. And, uh, and I, Gordon, I know you're a big fan, big listener of the podcast. I hope you're well. Anyhow, just moving on, looking uh, towards the G7. I don't know if you caught yep. the news last night. Just uh, Boris and Biden together. I thought, geez, what a combo. <laughs> and then they were bumping elbows. And uh, um, But anyhow, the G7, the main things on the agenda, the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, climate change uh, and trade. And on the trade issue, one thing that has come up just briefly this week, and one of the things... I was writing about in my kind of end of day wraps that I send out to, to everyone in the community was about Brexit. Started hearing a little bit more about Brexit. Thought that ship had sailed. Well, guess what? It's come back. It forgot something at the port. <laughs> because basically, uh, long story short, it's like a broken record. It's like we're right at the beginning. It was like Northern Ireland. You cannot solve Northern Ireland, basically. And here we are. It's Northern Ireland, it's the issue again. Um, so and what's happening is that the UK are kind of going back on a legally binding agreement that they put into place about then the uh, avoidance of customs checks on the island of Ireland and so on. And so that's really frustrated Europe because that's not the deal that they signed. And all of this has come to a head because of the fact that the the whole Northern Irish issue was given a grace period to shoo in the smooth transition of Brexit, obviously during a global pandemic. So it's kind of like, let's just kick it down the road. But here we are, we're still in a global pandemic for now. <laughs> and that's why you're hearing Brexit come up again at, at this point. And I would 100% anticipate through the next three weeks or so, you're going to hear a lot more about Brexit. But as far as its impact on markets, I think it's going to be absolutely minimal. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I don't know how many times we've had Northern Ireland Brexit risk, but a lot. And at no point has it ever kind of materialized as a proper, you know, cliff edge, you know, proper risk event. And it'll be the same again. That's not to say that it's not a problem that does need solving. Um, but you know, still the COVID, you know, situation is, of course, the dominant force on well, the global economy, but certainly goes the same for the UK and for, for Ireland and the rest of Europe and whatever. So, you know, I think in the end, it's another episode along 
you know, that that Northern Ireland problem with regards to the Brexit deal. It's another episode and it won't be the last one. And I don't know that, yeah, they're going to have to kick it down the road again, aren't they? Um, yeah, in terms of the solutions, let's say, to Northern Ireland, in terms of the, the kind of battlegrounds being drawn in their talks from this week, basically the EU has proposed a temporary Swiss-style veterinary veterinary agreement that would mean the UK follows the EU agri-food rules, that's what it's called, and eliminates about four-fifths of potential checks on goods shipped to Northern Ireland. Now, London is pushing for an equivalence arrangement in which the EU would recognise British standards on food production as equivalent to its own. So they're not going to agree. <laughs> it's not soon. <laughs> No, is the point. So, yeah, I mean, just so to put it in context, because one of the things I help a lot of the people just trying to understand how markets move in terms of sensitivity to information, context is key, and understanding the fact that just because the me the media will be absolutely loving the rhetoric that will intensify between these two parties, because it's going to get a little bit brutal. Like, um, we'll. You know, things saying like, we're going to pull out, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And actuality, it's just pure the mechanics of a negotiation uh, yeah. and nothing more, nothing less. And the market sees through that. So moving on from that, um, the pandemic, one thing that came out just an hour or so ago is the, the reproductive rate of COVID in the UK has bumped up to 1.2 to 1.4 mm. from 1 to 1.2. So it's moving in the wrong direction. And obviously the plus one is the marker of kind of growth going forward. Um, and of course, it's the Delta, i.e. Indian variant, that's the main focal point at the moment. Um, and so yeah, as far as Europe is concerned, I'm sure they're a little bit apprehensive about this following on from the alpha. I have to remember how the who are referring to the alpha uh, variant. Now we've got this new Delta version uh, as Europe and China reopen, as I said, with vaccination rates improving, I'm sure this is another one of those where there's a slight apprehension in the air about how this this latest variant is going to play out. Yeah, and you know, hopefully the vaccines are effective. And you know, what we want to see, and the, the UK is ahead of the curve in that vaccine rollout. And so, what we want to see in the UK is, whilst cases are on the rise and they're the highest they've been, I think it's since February now, isn't it? Um, and but what we want to see is does that feed into hospitalizations increasing and then much more importantly does it feed into deaths death rate going up what we do know is on that hospitalization front is that the demographic of people being hospitalized is on average a lot lower in terms of age than it was pre-vaccines and so therefore a lot there's a much smaller proportion of those being hospitalized that actually need intensive care treatment and so you would assume the data looks like it's going to show that there'll be a lot fewer deaths and in the end that's what's key and and all right looks like boris is going to have to delay the the full um you know relaxing of lockdown measures by a couple of weeks three weeks just so that we can get enough data down the line to make sure that that death rate doesn't spike like it has done on all of these other waves so we shall see. The science behind the, the kind of time frame of the delay is not only to get more data on how the latest Delta variant performs, but a delay of up to four weeks would allow second vaccine doses for all over 50s to have been administered and to have taken effect before reopening. So there's obviously a buildup of your how immune you become over time with these injections. The other thing is it also would coincide a four-week delay, that is, with the end of the school summer term. So reducing yeah. the extent of which outbreaks could be fueled by transmission from children onto their parents and so on and so forth. So yeah. to me, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. They, they should delay. Um, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact though, as far as financial markets are concerned, because I don't think it's a surprise to be quite, quite honest. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, the lockdown situation has been relaxed hugely already, don't forget. And, you know, check the GDP figures for April in the UK, explosive growth. And so delaying it, delaying the full ultimate relaxation of lockdown by a few weeks makes absolute sense and shouldn't have too much of an impact on the broad economy. Now, sure, within that, obviously, 
you know, the uh, certain sectors aren't going to like it. Um, the hospitality sector, for example. So, you know, it's not right to say that there's going to be no casualties from that delay because there will be. But, you know, I think it's, it's the right thing to do. Well, something else out of the G7, which was good to see, was that commitment to, um, you know, provide vaccines uh, for the um, developing world. And what, what was it, up to a billion? Did they agree on a billion vaccines? Yeah, it's a big number, but kind of feel like... Yeah, about time. Yeah. Uh, right. US after swallowing all of the available supply contracts up front. Yeah. Which is, you know, th this beyond short term markets. I mean, this is where you do get this divergence of disparity between developed and the emerging world economies and how they can react to this type of situation. I definitely think it's a bump in the road for the EMs. I don't think it's particularly problematic long, long term. But it goes a long way to show just how quickly these things can change. And as we talked about in the previous podcast episode about nationalism and the end of globalization, these types of factors. But on that front, then, to conclude, the other thing is Biden, one of his chief kind of objectives of this G7 meeting is to kind of align the troops a little bit against the defensive formation against China. Any, any, thought, any thought on that and whether Europe have got the appetite given that they themselves are managing their own relationships with China? Yeah, I, I mean, that's absolutely right, isn't it? The Biden is, is really trying to, he wants to step, he step the US are stepping it up, but, but they, you know, they, they need their, their pals from Europe to kind of be flanking them in a coordinated response to the threat if you want to call it that, of China in terms of China's ever sort of growing economic might, um, and I, I think I think that I think Boris is probably you know on board with this. Whether you'll get the Europeans on board as well, I don't know. I mean, I think what's interesting is this tax deal they've done. You know, that's a good sign that there is cooperation amongst these lot. And I, and I think that does send a message to the rest of the world, the Putins and, and the so-ons of this world to say that, all right, these guys, remember when Trump was around these G7 meetings, as were the G20 meetings, but they turned out to be fractious, um, you know, shouting matches. And it was, it was a very fractured relationship. This is unity now. And that, I think that tax deal was that signal. Look, we're back. Now Trump's out. Biden's here. We're back. We're back up. We're a team. We're united. We can get things done, um, and I think that is a powerful message for, for you know, China and Russia and so on. Um, I don't know what you thought. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking because when you said Putin, so Biden is meeting Putin, yeah, on the sixteenth, so Absolutely. next week. So that's another thing to keep an eye out for. And these things, you know, these the timings of any of these political events, as we always say, are so telling to then the type of conversations that you're likely to hear emerging from these state level conversations. And so the G7, they will all be talking about how we're going to deal with Russia and what's our stance, yeah. even though it's off agenda because Biden's, you know, he wants to know, right, have you got my back here? I'm going in. I'm it's going off into agenda, the Swiss right? villa, actually, he's going. <laughs> when, when, uh, when Biden landed in the UK, literally got off the plane and then got rolled around and did a speech and pretty much straight away mentioned Putin. You know, he said, I'm here and it's going to be great. And then I'm going to Russia and I'm going to tell Putin what I want him to hear, is what he said. Yeah, and here's my, here's my buddies. <laughs> <laughs> but I, mean, that, that, I mean, in a silly way, I mean, this is exactly what it is, right? It's optics yeah, from absolutely. a political point of view in a very high stake game, basically. Yeah. And so, you know, there is more unity now with Biden rather than Trump. And, you know, that can only be a good thing is that kind of coordinated platform to to kind of tackle these issues. Um, but that tax deal, I thought, you know, that's a good sign in that they, they can get things done. Now, that's a pretty major thing, that tax deal. You know, I, I think um, it shouldn't be kind of, dis well, not dismissed, but it should be given, and perhaps it'll take time to kind of, and obviously we've only had top level details at this point, but if, if, if you missed it, then 
basically what the G7 have agreed, and it's only the G7 at this point, but um, they've agreed a global minimum corporation tax rate of at least 15%. So obviously this causes a problem for some tax havens out there. So the Irish, for example, have a corporation tax rate of 12.5%. And there's plenty of countries out there that have way lower than that. But um, so, uh, but then on top of that, it's it's kind of identifying the 100 largest multinational enterprises. So separate to the kind of flat, right, you've got to have minimum 15% corporation tax. Separate to that, the biggest 100 multinational companies get taxed at 20%. Um, taxed on profits generated in each country. Only though if the profit margin for that business is greater than 10%. So, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles, they're going to get taxed by the UK and they'll be taxed based on the profit that these companies make in the UK. To give you an idea, Google makes zero profit in the UK, right? Zero in inverted commas. And that's because it operates out of Ireland. So actually the Irish profit, Google Ireland made a 1.94 billion euro profit last year. Profit, 1.94 bill. Got taxed just over 200 million. But got taxed at like 12%. In, in that year, Google Island paid its parent company a 500 million euro dividend. So it's crazy what's going on. How Google pay no tax here isn't right. And that's just because the global taxation system is based, was really founded on uh, in the 1920s. It was very much geared around uh, preventing double taxation. So they wanted to avoid double taxing companies as companies started to sell stuff in other countries. So it was all built around that concept. But now you fast forward 100 years. And of course, rather than worrying about double taxing, you've just got multinationals tax evading and exploiting the system. And it's not fit for purpose. And so I think what they've outlined and it's not been, you know, as I said, it's just the G7, but what they've outlined is this new flat rate deal and then going after these multinationals and taxing them properly in each in each country. And I think, you know, I think it's fair. Okay, that's it. Matter of fact, Piers Curran, tax rates. Amazon, there is one issue with this though, which I'm not sure I was that happy about, but so they're taxing, so companies get paid, get, get taxed at 20% on profits in each country, but only if their profit margin as a business is higher than 10%. Now, there's one company that gets away with that, and you might have heard of it. It's called Amazon, because their profit margin is less than 10%. Very famously, Bezos has spent his entire Amazonian career plowing profits back in to building his business. And so actually, on the face of it, Amazon will carry on getting away with it, except they very consciously are aware of that. So what they've decided, or what we, we need more details, but they're thinking about considering AWS, um, which is Amazon Workspace, that's their cloud service, that's got a profit margin of over 30%. So they're actually considering, right, we're going to take AWS and we're, we're going to consider that as a separate entity and tax that as if it's a separate entity. So they're going to try and get Amazon some way. Um, so there's a lot of details to thrash out here, but in principle, at top level, this has been a long time coming and it's reform that is needed. Yeah. And so says Piers Curran. <laughs> and on that fact with Amazon, there's an Amazon anniversary that happened yesterday. Ooh. Are you aware of that? It's 25th? So June 10th of 2020, Amazon did something. June 10th of 2020. Yeah. Uh, is it something to do with Prime? Is it Prime Day or something like that? No. Nope. I don't know. They announced a one-year pause on police use of facial recognition technology. Oh. So when you go out today, just um, just be aware that you are being tracked and monitored right. and, and, and put into the database, Fierce. It recommenced yesterday. Big, when you were walking your dog, I saw you pop up on my phone. Bezos texted me and big said- Big Brother Switch. Big Brother Switch is back on. Yeah, so okay. if anyone is interested, I, I watched a, just an interesting documentary. I'm sure most have seen it already. It's called Coded Bias. It's the new documentary on Netflix. It just talks about AI technology and its inherent built-in biases that it has um, yeah. and how, you know, it's kind of uh, black box systems and how they operate. And it basically is just a reflection of the existing prejudices that we 
input yeah. into it in our society and they get amplified but it was interesting um yeah i'll leave it at that check it out it's worth a it's worth a watch but i think the overall end point that i thought was quite interesting was it makes you think oh my good Ch- china are really terrible china are terrible but then the one lady the scientist made a really good point she said china aren't terrible actually china are completely upfront and transparent it's the u.s who are terrible and it's the yeah. US who go about this and they do it without telling you uh, it's a difference. And so there has been some change. The police, I think, federal can't use it, but companies can use your data any way they see fit. That's the difference. Right. And they were yeah. saying things like GDPR that we had come in, obviously, as main legislation here in the UK and elsewhere in Europe, but yeah. GDPR protects us. We own our kind of what gets shared. In America, they were just saying it's the Wild West and yeah. And obviously, companies like you said, your Googles, your Facebook, your Amazons, you know, these are just hugely, this is the resource, right? Of they the, have way more power than governments. And that yeah. is a problem for those companies because governments will not let that go on forever. And this, this binds this conversation together, right? Which is kind of like, right, <laughs> let's yeah. get some money out of it. Let's tax them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, look, we'll wrap it up there. Um, wish everyone a fantastic weekend thanks for listening and we'll see you again same time next week thanks Piers have a good weekend hold up What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.